Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 17, verses 5 through 10, and please read with me the highlighted verses. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm one of uh, two pastors. You met uh, Brad. My name is Daniel. Uh, thankful for um, another Sunday to celebrate. Um, can we pray before we begin? Lord, we need instruction from your word again. Because, Lord, they are like a honeycomb to our lips. Lord, they refresh our soul. Lord, they convict uh, us of where we fall short and, and fall short of your glory. So we pray, Lord, that the word would make its impact on our heart today. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered what you could do if you had just a little more faith. Have you ever wondered what you could do if you had just a little bit more? You know, almost like a superpower, right? If you had a little bit more of whatever it is, what you could do with that. My guess is most of us have struggled with this idea of faith at one point or another. If I had just more faith, I wouldn't have so many questions or, or doubts. Or if I had more faith, God would answer my prayers. Or if I just had more faith, he wouldn't have died or she would have recovered. Or if I just had more faith, I would be more involved in the church or I would give more or, or do more. If I just had more faith, I would be a better person, maybe a better parent, a better spouse. If I just had more faith, I would know what to do, how to handle things better. If I just had more faith, life would be different. Well, whether it's as funny as having more faith in our favorite sports team, or the way we manage our finances, whether it's taking greater risks in life or taking a chance on an opportunity, we all wish we had just a little more faith. 
That seems to be the request of the disciples of Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. In the opening verses of chapter 17, Jesus had just warned his disciples not to become stumbling blocks to others. He had just taught them and advocated his disciples to forgive others as often as they offend them, and as often as the offender repents, even if it amounts to seven times a day. Seems like a lot. But the thing is, when you read through various portions of the Scripture, you will often find yourself overwhelmed with the great difficulty of many of its commands. I mean, we read the portions of the gospel that say, you are to be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Or how about love your enemies? Do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Or how about uh, no one can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions? I mean, these seem like very difficult, if not impossible, commands for us to follow. There are many like this that Jesus teaches his disciples and, and us to follow. And the question is, how can we possibly obey these seemingly impossible commands of Scripture for you and I both know that forgiveness is especially tough when you have been wronged and when you've been wronged seven times a day. It's not easy. And so rightly so, the disciples of Jesus respond by asking Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. It's an honest request. They realize that if they wanted to fulfill these commands, they would need supernatural enabling. They would need God's strength to do it. Increase our faith. And it seems like a reasonable request. If our culture has told us anything, if a little is good, a lot is much better. Lord, increase our faith. If McDonald's can supersize our fries and drinks, surely Jesus can increase our faith. Faith to do incredible things, including forgiving those who wrong us. Let me pause right here for a moment and ask, does God ever say no because we don't have enough faith? Does God ever say no because we don't have enough faith? Is unanswered prayer a result of too little faith. Do we not have because we have not, forgive me, mustered enough faith? <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> Don't we often come to these conclusions? I didn't pray hard enough, or my faith wasn't strong enough. Friends, I know I have certainly felt this way. When I pray harder, my friends, the request to increase our faith, the belief that if I had more faith, that things would be different, reveals, I think, a misunderstanding of what faith is. 
The text gives us a clue as to what faith is, and it also gives us a clue as to what faith is not. Faith is not something to be measured. Faith is not to be stockpiled or traded in for supernatural powers. Faith is not given to us to be spent as currency in our dealings with God. Faith is not about how much or how strongly we believe Jesus' words or actions. Faith is not about how badly we want it or wish for something to happen. That's not faith. Jesus uses agricultural imagery, something everyone knew at that time and understood in the times of of Jesus. One, the mustard seed was the smallest of seeds, something like one or two millimeters big. Two, Jesus tells us about the mulberry tree, which was known for its vast and invasive root system. It would grow quickly and would spread far and deep and it would dominate the surrounding soil areas. And so picture the bizarre imagery of a tiny seed uprooting a mulberry tree. And I would say just as ridiculous as that sounds for us, I think was just as ridiculous for the hearers of this parable. A small seed, the smallest of them, uprooting a tree with this vast root system. And then imagine it being replanted in the sea. There's nothing more ridiculous and more ridiculously useless than replanting a mulberry tree in the ocean. Like I said, it's a bizarre illustration. And so we ask ourselves, what is the point of Jesus' story? Jesus changes the question at the heart of this passage. No longer is this a conversation about how much faith is enough to a question of what faith is for. What use is faith? If Luke 17 teaches us anything about faith, it's that faith is not a matter of quantity, but it is a matter of presence. Jesus is very clear that faith is not about size or quantity, for he says, if you have faith, The size of a mustard seed, a grain of a mustard seed, he says. You can tell this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus says faith that small can move mountains. Small faith can uproot mulberry trees, as ridiculous as that sounds. And the real question that Jesus asks us is, do you have faith? Not how big is your faith? But here's the other thing, the second thing. It's not just, do you have faith? But the real question is, what is your faith in? Jesus is not emphasizing the size of our faith as much as he is emphasizing the object of our faith. You see, Jesus' ability is infinite. The illustration is ridiculous because he wants to show us that Jesus and God can do ridiculously impossible things. I mean, Jesus says to himself, there's nothing impossible with God. And that's the point. Regardless of, and mind you, regardless of how little 
or how big our faith may be. What's more important is how big the object is in which we place our faith. For clearly from this passage, we do not need much. It just needs to be placed in the right person, the person of Jesus. You don't need great faith. You need faith in a great God. See, the clear teaching of Scripture is that the object of our faith is everything. Which leads me to my third point. The idea of more faith. The more I study this particular passage, the idea of more faith always exalts the person. Never God. Doesn't it? Have you ever had someone say to you, I wish I could believe Christ as you do, or I don't have as much faith as you have, and you clear your throat <clears throat> and modestly say, oh, nah, shucks, you know, uh, it's nothing really. <laughs> Who gets the glory? Who gets the credit? You do. I do. You're the one with such great faith. But do you think that's the point of Jesus' parable, that we would look at the great faith of an individual, the great faith of a disciple, the great faith of a follower of Jesus? No, Jesus is saying, no, you got to place your faith in the, in the object, not the subject, but the object of that faith is, is Jesus, for the, the one for whom nothing is impossible. And that's why he points us to the, the fact of the smallest of, of seeds, a mustard seed, and says this mustard seed can uproot mulberry trees, and at your command, it'll obey what you say. I mean, it almost seems like, I mean, they, I mean, it almost sounds like Jesus has watched his Marvel movies, you know, uh, trees being uprooted and, and being thrown. The impossible Jesus can do, and Jesus isn't saying, your faith has to be that of a mulberry tree. He says a mustard seed. How much faith do you need to forgive another person who has wronged you? Isn't the answer as much faith as it takes to believe that God has forgiven me? And that's why when we say the Lord's Prayer, we always include uh, that beautiful and difficult part of that prayer, Lord, forgive us our sins, Lord, as we forgive our debtors. Lord, help me to forgive others because of the great mercy you have shown me. Lord, forgive my debts, this great debts, so that I can forgive others with smaller debts. See, the teaching of Scripture is that the object of our faith is everything. Lord, I know that as much as I have trusted you to forgive my sins, I know you did it not because of my great faith, 
but because you are a faithful God. Lord, as I have been forgiven, Lord, forgive me. Oh, Lord, help me to forgive as I have been forgiven. Lord, uproot this bitterness from my heart and plant it in the sea. You see, by taking our eyes off of us and our faith and unto God and his great mercy and faithfulness, you glorify him. Even if your faith is as small as a mustard seed, God can uproot your bitterness and bury it forever. And he alone at that point gets all the glory. My friends, to put it another way, to put it another way, we can never have enough faith to please God. We can never have enough faith to the point that it impresses God enough to do something for us. Whoa! You know, I mean, you can imagine God saying, whoa, that's great faith. I'm going to do it now. <laughs> for if that was the case, I would never be forgiven. And therefore, not enough faith cannot be a reason for God not doing something. Because in that line of thinking, at its core argues, you didn't do enough to push God into doing something. As if any of our actions could do that. They can't. And friends, my friends, when you hear this, this is good news. Church, faith is a gift. God gives it, and we don't have any business telling God we don't have enough when God has given us enough faith to be faithful. Last week, I think uh, I gave, uh, two weeks ago, I gave three sermons. Today, I will only do two. <laughs> There's a second teaching, and it's right in the next verses. The second teaching in our text is a funny one, too. It's strange and an, and an unexpected story. It's about a man with a small farm tended by a single servant who labors all day in the field and feeds livestock who then comes in exhausted at the end of the day and is expected after he has finished everything to prepare a meal for the master. You might expect if we looked at this story with today's lenses, we might see this as a breach of fair wages and working conditions. We read the story. There may be the perks and the privileges of the job, but we're not seeing it here. And certainly, we would, in our day and age, never allow this kind of boss to ever exist, to ever hold these kinds of positions ever again. This story would never fly in today's culture. You might even expect, knowing that we, what we know about Jesus, to say, Lord, if that's your servant, tell him to sit down, take a break, say to him, I'll go and prepare your meal, and after all you've done in the heat of the day, how about a glass of Chardonnay? I try to make it rhyme. <laughs> but strangely, that is not what Jesus says. I believe Jesus is making a point here very similar to the previous parable that he told. In the ancient culture, a servant had a very simple job description. Do everything your master tells you to do. Period. They did not give orders. They took orders. They did not negotiate with their owner. They didn't join slave unions to get better working conditions. They were not free to say, I don't like that order, or I don't like that job, or I don't like to do that, so I'm not going to do it. But, at the, at, but to be honest, as we read this story, the image at the center of this parable makes us feel really uneasy. 
Our discomfort with this text only increases when we read it in other translations as it renders a servant a slave. Which is a term that conjures horrific images of slavery in our own country. This parable confounds at best and best uh, and, and does uh, damage at its worst. You know, you and I, we abhor slavery. The idea of being a slave or being treated like a slave is repulsive to us. And perhaps that is why we have such a difficult time understanding this passage. And it certainly makes no sense from the mouth of the one who came to set the captives free, all of which begs the question, what is Jesus talking about? Now, this may strike us a little odd because we know Jesus wasn't in the habit of speaking unkindly about slaves or people of lower status. There is the familiar story of the rich, la rich man um, in the previous section and uh, Lazarus in chapter 16, where a beggar is assigned higher honor than his rich neighbor. We also know that Jesus often compared the kingdom to a banquet, which we are all invited to, slave or free, rich and poor alike. And he often talked about how the least among us would take the high places of honor at the table to eat with the master. And so Jesus was in the business of turning hierarchies and powers uh, and power structures on their heads. So why does Jesus resort to this controversial social structure to make this point to the disciples? Uh, Kenneth Bailey, who has done so much work studying the life of uh, in the villages of the ancient Middle East, um, he writes this, in a technological age with a 40-hour week, powerful labor unions, and time and a half for overtime, the world of this parable seems not only distant but unfair. After a long, hard day in the field, such a servant surely had earned the right to a little appreciation, some comforts and a few rewards, but Jesus is building on a well-known and widely accepted pattern of behavior in the Middle East. And so he's getting us to look back and find ourselves in the shoes of those who are listening to this story and saying, no, it's not all that uh, similar to what we face in our time and age. Now, the important thing we may need to keep in mind when we read passages like this is that Jesus is not describing our relationship with God. That is clear. This story is not about Jesus as our cruel taskmaster, right? God as the slave driver and us as slaves. Jesus is not painting a portrait of this mean man, this mean boss, this, this master who demands our loyalty and our work and us as, our, as, us as his servants. That's not what it is. Jesus is painting for us the way, and describing for us the way Pharisees thought about God. The way they viewed God was that they viewed God as stingy, not generous. And it caused them to have a skewed view of, of, of obedience to God. You know, if we do this, then God's got to do that for us. They viewed obedience as something that gave them leverage, not just with God, but over God. Surely if I do this, God's got to do this for me. You scratch my back, 
I'll scratch yours. God, I'll do this if you'll do that. Or I'll stop doing this if you'll stop doing that. Or I'll do this if you give me this blessing. Or surely if I do this, it will earn your reward. But my friends, this isn't that far off from our own theology. We fall into this trap as well. Many of us fall into this pattern of thinking something difficult is going on in our life. And so we decide, well, you know, if I just obey enough, maybe if I can make up for whatever it is that I've done wrong that has caused this bad stuff to come into my life, then maybe God will bless me. My obedience will give me some leverage with God. The theology of the Pharisees was such that they would look at people who were ill or diseased or uh, disadvantaged or poor. And you know what they thought? They were cursed by God because they were disobedient. Whereas the rich and the prominent and the powerful were viewed as essentially blessed. What's the connection? They did something, therefore God did something for them. Or they did something wrong, and therefore God did something to them. Now, this passage is difficult for several reasons, and it's difficult because it's easy to understand how people can read the Bible and see the connection between blessing and obedience and draw the wrong conclusion that our obedience binds God to give us a blessing and that therefore God's blessing is contingent upon our blessing. It's easy to see how someone could make that mistake. They thought that all the things the Pharisees did for God amounted to something. Now, they wanted God to do this, His duty, and welcome them to the banquet table. Sound familiar? This is what the Pharisees thought. They were like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son, that when they came in from the field, they wanted their father to celebrate their obedience. That line of thinking teaches the way to God's favor is through our actions. But my friends, that cannot be true. It is not true. It cannot be. The way to God's favor is God's grace alone because we have nothing to which to impress Him. There is not enough faith that we can muster. And that's the point that Jesus is making In verse 10, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Here is the point of the parable. So likewise you, he was speaking to us, so likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, uh, say, we are unprofitable. We are unworthy servants. We have done What was our duty to do? We have nothing to add to the asset side of the ledger. The truth is, as difficult as it sounds, God does not owe us anything. It's contrary to what our culture thinks, and I apologize if that's what you think, that we're entitled to good 
The scriptures tell us otherwise. God does not owe us anything. We think that we have something coming to us because we've lived a good life. That is what Jesus means when he says we are unworthy servants. He means that we do not have any merits of our own. One theologian writes, he that desires to be saved must, con must confess that there is no good thing in him, that he has no merits, no goodness, or worthiness of his own. He must be willing to renounce his righteousness and trust in the righteousness of another. You see, God is not like the small farmer. The servant comes in, and yes, he does everything he is asked to do. He does his job. He hasn't done anything in merit, some sort of response from his master. He's just done his job. But before we get carried away and think that God is the cruel taskmaster, he, in fact, is telling us quite the opposite, that God never relates to us this way. That's not how God relates to us. In fact, Jesus is going to point out the fact in this passage, just as he did in the story of the prodigal son, that God is, in fact, the one who lavishes his kindness to us and gives us those things that we don't deserve. We should never imagine that this is something we deserve. You see, if a master decides to serve his servants, it is not because they earned the right to be served, but simply because of amazing grace. When we finally surrender to the grace of God, we make the most, ama we, we make the most amazing discovery, even though we do not deserve it. Jesus did exactly what the master never does. He came to serve. The story is profound for a number of reasons. And it should shock us. It should move us when we hear the story about a God who comes and disrobes himself in John chapter 13 and tells us, having loved them to the very end, he washed as a servant does the feet of his disciples. The story is a profound one, and it shouldn't move us because the God of the universe, the one who controls all things, the one who says a word and it happens, just like a master does, who breathed stars and moon and, and earth and sky and animals and human beings into existence, that this God who holds a power in his lips causes all things to happen. The text tells us that he became nothing and became a servant. Who would do that? Who would lay aside a crown? Who would take off royalty to serve ungrateful and undeserving people like me? We didn't get to it, but the next section is about 10 lepers who cry out to Jesus, Lord, heal us. 
and Jesus heals all ten, and he says, well, where are the other nine when only one returns to give thanks? Jesus heals, and Jesus offers grace, whether our faith is big or small. And my friends, Jesus, he, showing the ultimate submission and servanthood, He lays aside royalty and he comes to serve his disciples by breaking bread with them and pouring a cup of of wine that would show the extent of his love that his own life would be sacrificed on a cross for our sake. 